Go ahead and be turning to Genesis chapter number 12. Genesis chapter 12. And we started a few weeks ago on a new series that I've been calling uh, Jesus BC. And we're going through the Old Testament and we are looking at uh, types and pictures and figures of Christ in the Old Testament and looking at salvation from the Old Testament. Because a common misconception today is that uh, people were saved differently in the Old Testament times, or that uh, somehow that there's been a change in God's dealings with mankind over time. And I guess to, to, an, extent, there, to an extent, there has been a difference in his dealings, but mankind has always been saved by grace through faith. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and how uh, sin came in and there was a judgment. Uh, God is a righteous judge. There was a judgment against the sin and death was the punishment because the wages of sin is always death. And God, in his love and his mercy, allowed a substitute of an animal to be slaughtered to die in their place. And of course, the animal could not uh, pay the price for a human life. Uh, contrary to what they may teach today, an animal and a human being does not have equal value in the eyes of God, or in the eyes of man for that matter. It shouldn't anyway. And so um, it was a figure, it was a picture, an illustration of Jesus. And so Adam accepted by faith that God allowed for a substitute to die in his place. And so he was clothed with the skins of that animal, a picture of putting on the righteousness of Christ. And uh, so with that, he was uh, he was saved in an Old Testament sense. And from that time onward, he didn't live a perfect life. But God did give him uh, the practice, I, I guess I can call it a practice, institution, whatever it is, of sacrifice. And he passed it on to his children and told them the story, told them what, why it was necessary, how it all worked. And Abel accepted it by faith. And he offered up the sacrifices that God had uh, had ordered, had commanded. But Cain said, I think I can do it my own way. And God rejected Cain's act of self-righteousness and self-will and told him that he had to come God's way or no way. And so Cain decided no way and ended up killing Abel. And then we moved on to Noah last week. And we found that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All of the world was sinful that every heart or every thought uh, of every man was only evil continually. And so God says, I'm going to flood the entire earth. I'm going to wipe out the entire population. But because of Noah, because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, God told him, uh, I'm going to destroy the earth, but I have made a way of salvation that if you will trust me, then you can escape the flood. And so the flood's coming. I need you to build a boat. And so he believed, and his beliefs brought forth actions. And so belief precedes action. And so he wasn't saved uh, in a spiritual sense by building the boat. He was saved by faith. And we see that all the way over in Hebrews. That makes it plain there that Noah was saved by his faith, not by his works, not by his building a boat. But he believed God was counted to him for righteousness. And so today we're going to be looking at Abraham. And I like the story of Abraham, and he he takes up quite a bit of um, 
scripture in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis. And we're not going to go in depth into uh, in depth into his story, but we're going to kind of do a bit of an overview of it because I find Abraham's life uh, gives us a good illustration of the average Christian life. Whenever you think of Abraham, do you usually think of average? We think of Abraham as being a spiritual giant, right? We think of him being uh, kind of monumental in his stand because uh, he is the father of Judaism, right? He is the father of the Jewish nation. And because of that, and all of the references that we find where the Jews basically <laughs> worshipped Abraham, right? He gets elevated to the place of uh, almost deity, not by God, but by man. And so we see him as being uh, a giant amongst men. But if we actually get into his life, and God has recorded a lot of his life, we can see a lot of connection, a lot of parallels between our lives as an average ordinary Christian today and to Abraham's life back then. Now, we may not be living to 175 years old. We may not be uh, giving birth to children whenever we're 100 years old, right? There are some supernatural things that took place there. But as we see his relationship with God, it shows us what is fairly normal for many Christians. And so that's what I want to look at today. And so we're going to be seeing his uh, salvation BC, right? And then we're going to be looking at him living out that salvation. Uh, we've quoted recently, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? And so we're going to see how uh, Abraham works out his salvation from the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter number 12, I'll read uh, nine verses here, and that'll be our starting point. And we're going to cover several chapters, but I'm not going to read them all, okay? Because I could just read through the chapters and call it a day, right? That would take up all of our time and you all be asleep. But anyway, I'll read the first nine verses. And it says, Genesis chapter 12, verse number one. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, uh, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram, Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai, I guess is how you say that, on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And so in this passage, we find this is uh, where the Lord came to him and called him out from amongst his people. Uh, we can see back at the end of 
chapter number 11, it seems almost as if God had called him previous to this and there was a partial obedience that took place. He left with his father and all of them out of Ur of the Chaldees, came out to Haran and stopped there until his uh, father died. And then God comes to him again and says, okay, now it's time for you to uh, finish, to, for you to completely obey me, right? But in the passage that we read here, the Lord comes to him and tells him to get out from amongst his kindred. He says, I want you to separate. I want you to leave. I want you to turn from one thing and go a different direction, right? And he says, I want you to go into a land that I will show thee. Doesn't tell him what the land is. He says, I'm taking you to a place. It's going to be a good place. He says, I'm going to make thee a great nation. I'm going to bless thee. I'm going to make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. Now, in all of these things that we've seen here, uh, this promise that God is making to Abraham, it is all uh, focused upon what God is going to do, right? He doesn't say, Abraham, you're going to have to do all of these things. He says, I want you to simply trust me, and I want you to start following me at this place, and I'm going to take you to the place that you need to go, and in the process of all of this, I'm going to make all of these things happen to you. And so in this, we see a picture of salvation taking place because God has revealed his word to Abraham. He says, you're leaving this. You're going to end up in another place. You have a beginning. You have an ending. And then we're going to worry about the in-between tonight, right? But with the salvation, he has a choice that he needs to make because at this point in time, whenever God comes to Abraham, he has a religion, right? He was a pagan. It wasn't that God came down and Abraham was the only one still worshiping God, but instead he brings him out of Ur of the Chaldees where they worship the sun, the moon, and all the heavens, right? And there's no evidence whatsoever that Abraham and his family didn't also worship them. But God in his mercy comes down to someone who isn't really even seeking him. He comes down to someone who isn't doing any great works, and he reveals himself to this man. Abraham had flocks and herds. He had a family. He had wealth and positions and uh, power and all this going on. But still, Abraham needed to make a decision, and he decided to leave that, to risk all that he had to follow God. And this is where a lot of people find an issue because they see that if they have to follow God, if they have to make a decision they're afraid of what they may have to give up. And that keeps a lot of people from following God. That's one reason why the Lord said it was harder for a uh, rich man to be saved than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? Because they trust in their riches. They are, they are so tied into the things of this earth that they're afraid to risk that to follow God. But Abraham chooses to go ahead and separate from his family, from his kindred, from the farms that he probably owned and a lot of the stuff that he had and to leave that place and go where God was leading him. And he had to do that by faith, right? And so like Noah, we find that the actions were preceded by faith. He believed God and because he believed God, he obeyed God, right? And so if you put yourself in Abraham's place, Imagine him living there amongst all of his family, 
all the relations that he had made, uh, all of the life that he had made for himself, God appears to him and says, okay, it's time for you to up and leave this and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And so he comes to Sarai, his wife, and says, honey, um, we're moving. Okay, where are we going? I don't know. Well, I'd really like to know a destination before we just pack up and everything. I'm kind of connected to this place. I've got friends. I've got family. We've got the the bingo club down in the corner, and I, I don't really want to leave this at the moment, right? Now, the bingo club is not in the Bible, but you know. She would have had a life. She would have had hobbies. She would have had things there. And Abraham says, God has appeared to me, and he says that he's going to do all of these great things in our lives, but we need to leave this place, and he's going to lead us to where he wants us, and he's going to make all these things happen. And Sarah follows him. And not only does Sarah follow him, but Lot also follows him. And so we see that Abraham had the type of testimony and the type of faith that other people were willing to follow. He was a witness to those who were around him even already, right? And so his nephew Lot came, his wife came, their servants, I don't think they had a choice in the matter, right? They all came and they followed Abraham out of that place. But back to where we were at here. He decided that it was worth trusting God, that he believed God enough, that he could trust God enough to risk all of those things and that God was going to take care of him. And there's a parable, as the Lord tells, about the, the man finding the pearl of great price, right? And he sold all he had. He bought the field that the treasure was in. Uh, we find that that was another one, of the buried treasure in the field. This is what Abram had done is he decided that what he had found was worth giving up everything for and going after. And I'm not saying that for us as Christians we have to abandon all and follow Jesus, but I'm saying we esteem him as, uh, as worthy of following, worthy of believing. We trust him. That's faith. God doesn't call all of us to leave all that we have and follow him to another land, but he does call for us to put our faith in him and to trust him. And that's what Abraham has done. And so he believed in what God had revealed, and it's evidenced by his uh, obedience, just the same as we saw in Noah last week. And so at the end of verse number nine that we read, would you say that Noah, or excuse me, that Abraham was a child of God, that he was saved? Do we need to take a vote? At the end of chapter 9, or not chapter 9, at the end of verse number 9, is Noah, is Abraham saved? What do y'all think? Hmm? He trusted and took the first steps of obedience, right? So we've got two yes, three yes? Yeah. Put Anne on the spot. What do you think? Was he saved? Was it, I, I keep using saved and we don't get hung up on that, but was he, by New Testament standards, was he born again? Was he saved? Was he a child of God at the end of verse number nine? 
You don't think so? Okay. It's okay to be the dissenting room. You know? Okay. If he's not, okay, mm-hmm. then what would it take for him to be? Yeah, I just say you have something to come back for that. <laughs> Does he have to obey to a certain extent before he is saved? No. Okay. Okay. And is there anything that he could do at this point that God would reject him? No, but I want you all to think. I mean, yeah. this isn't. Is there anything that Abraham could have done at this point after he has left all and started following and he's arrived in Canaan at Bethel? He has went where God has called him to do. He has obeyed to this point. Is there anything that he could do that would cause God to reject him, abandon him to somebody else? Well, technically speaking, God had um, a plan for him, so anything he did it seemed to work out in God's favor. And... Well, God, God worked all things together for his good, but was he always obedient? We can't get into fatalism that God had a plan and so it was going to happen because a lot of things that happened in his life wasn't God's plan. It was Abraham doing his own thing, wasn't it? I'm wanting this to be more conversational. I want us thinking because I want us to see in the Old Testament what salvation was, right? And it's the same thing as it is today. It is still... Faith, and then that faith brings about action, right? If we would take it into a New Testament account, the thief on the cross, right? The thief on the cross, is he in heaven today? He's saved, right? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? And so he believed. There was a point in time on that cross that in his heart he believed that Jesus wasn't just some man, wasn't just some rabbi, wasn't just some religious zealot, but instead he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And because he believed, what did he do? How did he act? I mean, how did he act out? How did he act out his belief? He asked Jesus, remember me whenever you enter into your kingdom. So for him to speak that, he had to believe that they were getting ready to go into eternity, that he as a thief was unable to do anything for himself, but that the one that he was speaking to, Jesus, was able to do something for him to fix his situation, right? And so he believed that Jesus was the Son of God and was able to save his soul, and he called out to him. So the belief resulted in an action, right? Yeah. 
just always is the problem because in the New Testament was Samuel believed that Jesus died for you and you're mm -hmm. going to heaven and like okay. here it's not like you know it's just only promise that you diminish and every this one this mm -hmm. one it's nothing about like the life you know mm -hmm. or something like that it's not it's just hard you know? okay <laughs> and you bring up a good point and this is something else I was wanting you to discuss tonight okay because as we're discussing salvation BC okay we see that, of course, in Adam's situation, that there was sin and there was a punishment and there was the need to be saved from that punishment, right? And so in that, we can kind of see similar to the New Testament, but there's not Jesus there. There's not the cross. There's not even eternity in view. He's not sure what he's being saved from. There's a lot of question marks with that, right? With Noah, it is salvation from the flood, right? But we find in Hebrews that it does talk about him being saved in a spiritual sense because of his faith, right? And Abraham likewise. But what we see in the Old Testament is as we go forward in the Old Testament that God is uh, revealing. He is, uh, in a way, he is unveiling his plan. And so it is slowly taking shape with each step that we're looking at that God is filling in the, the voids. He's kind of giving a clearer picture. And so in a way it's unraveling or however you want to, however you want to uh, explain that from the time of Adam, it was just kind of a glimpse. You're just getting a small picture of it until you get up to Christ and to the thief and into uh, Peter and into Paul and into the churches in Gentile regions, it becomes more and more full from the beginning until you get to the end, right? And so what we find is that as God was dealing with mankind, he was slowly revealing his plan, but... He was holding man responsible for what he had revealed unto them, right? And so he wasn't holding Adam responsible for the full gospel that Paul was responsible for, right? But every bit of it was faith in what God had revealed up until that point, right? And so I believe God, I'm going to take him at his word. There is something that he is going to do and I know I need to trust him and follow him, and he's going to take care of me, right? And yes, there was a responsibility and action on behalf of the people that we're looking at, right? We see Adam. He says, okay, God has made a way. If I do this sacrifice, I put on the clothing that God's going to cause me to not die for my sin, but he's going to forgive me. Uh, Noah says uh, there's going to be a flood that wipes out all of the world, but God has made a way. He's given me the abilities and everything that I need. I'm going to make this boat. I'm going to escape the flood. And now we come to Abraham, and he says God's promised me that through me he's going to do a work in this entire world, that he's going to make of me a great nation, that he is going to give me a name and a land and a people while he still had no children, 
And so God said he's going to do all these things, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to start following him and let him work in me the thing that he has promised, right? And so we kind of see this is where the faith comes in, is God's promised something, and I'm going to follow him and let him do it in me. God has promised something, I'm going to follow him, let him do it. And this is what's going on. We see the same thing all the way up to the New Testament. That's basically the story. I know that there is a problem. I'm a sinner. Can't do anything about it. But God has promised that he's going to take care of it. And he has something waiting for me in the future I can't quite comprehend. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to trust him to take care of that and get me there. Right? And so from all this, there is a decision to trust God and start following him. And from that point in time, I believe we are saved. Okay? And so I want to today kind of go through Abraham's life and fill in a little bit of this to show us that it's not the works that he's done. It's not that he has to believe up to a certain level or obey up to a certain level or perform at a certain level before he is saved. It was that initial belief. He heard the word of God and he took God at his word, he believed it, and then he was saved. Okay? And so after this point in time that we have in Genesis chapter 12, verse number 9, I believe that there is a commitment both ways. Man is going to fail in his commitment, but God never will. God says, I'm calling you to do this. This is your mission. Should you choose to accept it, right? And Abraham says, okay, I'll accept it. And God says, okay, you're my man, right? You're born again. You're in the family of God. You are now part of my history. I'm going to unveil or reveal or however you want to say it, my story through you. And so he was selected as being the one through whom the Messiah would come. All of the Old Testament that we see, it's all going to come through him. But I want to go back to this. It's not based on anything that Abraham was. He was just another pagan in Ur of the Chaldees, right? But yet God extended his offer to Abraham. Abraham could have rejected it. I'm not Calvinistic, okay? But he didn't. And so God began walking with Abraham and Abraham walking with God. And Abraham had a very imperfect walk. Remember I said we could relate to him. We could draw parallels here. And so that's what I want to do here. And even though he didn't understand it all, even though he didn't know how all of this was going to work out, like I said there a little bit ago, he has a beginning point. God says, Abraham, follow me. And Abraham says, okay. God says, you're going to end up in a promised land as a multitude, uh, blessing all the world. And he says, okay, God, that seems like a, a really tall order to fill. But, okay, I'm in. And so for us, whenever we accept his offer of salvation, he promises heaven, and we have no clue what stands in between, right? He says, I'm going to work in your life. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to fit you for my kingdom. I'm going to do all these things. And one of these days, you're going to have your mansion along the streets of gold. You're going to be... Uh, riding your white horse into battle. You know, all these different things that we read about in the Bible. We know how it's going to end up, but we don't know what's going to happen in between. And so, 
as we look at Abraham's life, Abraham believed what God had revealed to him at that time. Okay, we've, we've looked at this slightly here. And I want to parallel that with today and see where it's different or where it's the same maybe. Because people today, many believe in God. Many people believe in Jesus, right? But what do they believe about Jesus? What Jesus do they believe in? Because it has to be the same Jesus that has been revealed in Scripture, right? Uh, many religions teach that Jesus was a good man, that he was a teacher, that he was a good example, or even that he does part of salvation. But none of those is a complete view of who Jesus is, right? So if you have faith that Jesus was a good teacher, well, he was a good teacher, right? I believe he exists. I believe he's a good teacher. But is that faith going to save anyone? The Bible says that even the devils believe in God and tremble, right? That there's going to be many that one of these days are going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these wonderful things in your name? And he's going to say, depart. And so where I want to bring this to is that God has revealed himself to an even greater extent today. And so we are accountable for what God has revealed today. It's not just enough to believe that there is a God in heaven. It's not just enough to try to vaguely follow him. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus and that he existed. But we need to take what God has revealed about himself, and we need to believe on who God is in reality, not in what we have made him out to be. Because if, for example, if Jesus is just part of salvation, if he only supplies a portion of it, if he's just the extra boost you need to get over the top, and you're to supply the rest of it, that's not the Jesus of the Bible because the Jesus of the Bible paid it all. He said it is finished, it was completed, right? And so the Bible tells us that if we have to work for it in any different any way whatsoever, that it is a different gospel. And we can see that in 2 Corinthians 11.4 and in Galatians 1.6, that there are people who believe in a different Jesus and that believe in a different gospel. And if that's the case, then that belief doesn't save. Okay? So we take this back to Abraham. If Abraham claimed that he believed God, but stayed in earth, did he believe God? If he said, I believe God, but the God that he believed led him instead of uh, to Canaan, led him to the other direction, over into China somewhere. He's not following the God of the Bible, right? So it doesn't matter how sincere he would have been. You have to believe the God of the Bible and what he has revealed about himself. So the reason I say all of this is we have to believe in Jesus as a Savior, as the only Savior, as the way, right? And if I believe that he can help me get to heaven, but that he's not the only way to heaven, then that's not a faith that's going to save you. Does that make sense? Everybody with me on that one? Okay, so anyway, Abraham became a child of God, not by works, not by religion, not by goodness, 
but by believing God and what he had revealed about himself. And so as we look at what was in between his beginning point and his ending point here, does he always have to maintain faith for him to, faith and obedience, I should say. Does he always have to maintain faith and obedience for him to remain God's child? This is something Peter brought out two weeks ago whenever we were talking about salvation in the Old Testament, whenever we were talking about Adam and Eve and different things. And he said that the duration of salvation seemed different because they had to offer more sacrifices and things like that, right? And so it was as if they believed and then, well, I don't believe anymore, so then I need to believe again. And I believed and I obeyed and then I disobeyed. And then... So what was the duration of Abraham's salvation? Did he always believe? Did he always obey? No, he wasn't obedient all the time. And, and, and even he didn't believe, you know, as well. Mm -hmm. you know, like, moments he didn't believe as well. Okay. So what happened? How did that affect his relationship with God? God promised him. He like like God promised him, and the moment he believed, and he with the action that he really believed, it's not doesn't affect him, you know that he is with God. So he is a child of God, and yeah. now he's treated as a child of God, right? He never gets disowned, he never gets booted out, but there are times that he is, yeah, he's away from God's presence at times. There are times that God allows things to happen to correct him, chastisement, right? And he learns a few hard lessons along the way, doesn't he? But God works all of those things together to uh, transform Abraham, to change his actions and reactions to the things in life, to bring about a greater, deeper faith and trust in God, right? To bring about security in God and his position with God, right? And so we see that happening over the next several chapters in the book of Genesis, because in chapter 12, picking up with verse 10 where we left off at, I'm not going to read this, but I want to kind of uh, go through a little bit of a summary and look at Abraham's life and see if it's as up and down as what ours is. Okay? So in the rest of chapter number 12, there is a famine in the land. And we can even go back to what we've already read. When Abraham got to the promised land, God says, I'm going to give you a land. And he gets to Canaan. What does he find? Land's already taken. He finds Canaanites. He says, wait a minute, God. Somebody's already living in my house. What are we doing with the tenants, right? And in all of Abraham's time, in his lifetime, he still stays in a tent, remains a pilgrim and a stranger, right? And so in all of that, it seems as if God's not coming through, but he's still following God. But at the very onset of this, he arrives, he's got Lot, he's got Sarah with him. And he says, okay, here's the land that God's giving us. And they're like, it looks like he already gave it to someone else before you, right? And so he looks around and the Canaanites were a wicked people. They were under the judgment of God. 
Anyone who feels sorry for the Canaanites because God caused the children of Israel to come in and wipe them out and possess the land hasn't read how wicked they were. And so God, in his judgment, uh, passed judgment on them and had them wiped out. Even Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, right? And so Abraham doesn't just come to the land and find that it's inhabited. He finds out that its inhabitants are worse than those of Ur of the Chaldees. He says, God, you didn't just have me to leave my family and my land and everything over there for a inhabited land. You had me to come into a land that's inhabited by really terrible people. And then after he's there and he's surrounded by the really terrible people and he's still staying in a tent, then things get bad because there is a famine that comes in the land. And then he says, wait a minute, God, you didn't tell me about the inhabitants. You didn't tell me about the famine. And so his response is he leaves the land that God told him to go to, and he goes down to Egypt. And this is our introduction to Egypt in the Bible. And Egypt is always a picture of the world, of sin, right? And so he says, I came here, and God isn't taking care of me. I've got to find my own solution. And so I'm going to go out and solve my problem in the world's way. I'm going to go down to uh, Egypt there I will find bread. I'll feed my family. I'll take care of myself because God's not taking care of me at the moment. And as he goes toward Beth, or not toward Bethel, as he goes toward Egypt, there are new fears that arise in his heart because he tells Sarai, he says, you're a pretty good looking woman for 65 years old. This is funny, Okay. And he says, I know those guys down in Egypt, what kind of guys they are, and they're going to see how pretty you are. And they're going to see me and say, well, if we kill her husband, then we can take her for our own. I don't know of too many men that's out poaching 65-year-old women, but apparently Abraham had that fear. <laughs> but something interesting to me is he never had that fear in Canaan. What is it? With all the wicked people there. Yeah. He never had the fear whenever he was where God told him to be. But whenever he left the will of God, he was becoming fearful of things that he hadn't previously been fearful of. Because he was trying to take care of himself. He was trying to look toward the world to take care of him. And so he tells Sarah, he says, whenever we get down there, tell everyone that you are my sister, which is a half-truth. They are related. But tell everyone you're my sister. That way they won't kill me. They'll just rape you. Way to go, Abraham. He's looking out for himself. And so he goes down there and apparently, apparently he gauged the Egyptians halfway right because they saw Sarai. And one of them came and got her because she was eligible. She wasn't married. She's running around with her brother, right? And hey, a 65-year-old unmarried woman, she needs to be married to someone, right? Maybe that was their thought. I don't know. And so they take her in. Now, here's a question. Would this have been a problem if he stayed in Canaan? Would it have been a problem if he would have been honest that she was his wife? Probably not. He conjured up this idea, they're going to murder me for my 65-year-old wife. If he would have said, yeah, she's my wife, you know, they probably would have left him alone. They probably wouldn't want to kill him for his wife. 
but he has brought on all these extra problems. He's got all these extra fears. He is putting his family in jeopardy. His wife, whom he's supposed to be looking out for and caring for and protecting, he is putting her in danger because he's left God's will. So we see multiple times here, he is not obeying God and he is not walking by faith. Did God abandon him? No, God didn't abandon him. So we see this as a picture of salvation for us because we're going to get saved. We're going to follow God for a while. There's going to be times of testing and trials and troubles. There's going to be times whenever we're fearful and we're confused. And there will be times that we do stupid stuff. And when we do stupid stuff, what is one of the first things that comes up in our mind? One of the first lies that the devil tells us whenever we have disobeyed God and when we disbelieve God? Go ahead and try. You had something. That's one of the most damning ones to us. Okay, so God's not, God's done with you, right? Mm-hmm. What were you saying? So you either doubt your salvation, mm-hmm. whether you ever had it, yeah. or if you still have it, right? Mm-hmm. How could God still want me yeah. after I've done all this? Surely God's done with me, right? That's what Peter went to after he denied Christ, right? Even whenever Jesus came back, showed himself, walked with him, talked with him, he still said, I'm going back to fishing because there's no way that he's ever going to use me. And that's why Jesus came to him and says, lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. I'm not done with you yet, right? And so with Abraham in this state, this shows us that it's not based on our good works, on our obedience, on our continued faith, because it will waver and we will mess up. Uh, John tells us that if we think that we're without sin, then we uh, have deceived ourselves, right? That's a, a, a poor summary of that, but that's, that's what it says. And so whenever we look at Abraham's state here, the Lord is still watching out for Abraham and Sarah, even though... Abraham is out of his will. And so God sends plagues upon the Egyptians. Isn't that kind of funny? The first time that uh, the Egyptians tangle with Abraham's family, there's plagues. And then it happens again later on. But there are plagues. And it keeps Pharaoh and his household or whoever it is that's taken Sarah from messing with her. They, they leave her alone. And so God protects Sarah whenever Abraham's not. Abraham lives through all of this. He doesn't get killed for lying to them and causing plagues to come upon them. But instead, God uses the Egyptian, he uses the pagan to reprove Abraham and says, Abraham, why did you lie to us? That wasn't very Christian-like of you. I'm paraphrasing, okay? And so he says, you've caused all kinds of trouble on our people. Whenever God said he's going to be a blessing to all nations, and all of a sudden he's been a curse to Egypt, right? Because he has left God's will, 
because he has disobeyed God, because he hasn't trusted God. But God uses his circumstances and he uses the pagan to reprove and to chastise Abraham. And so after this, Abraham tucks his, uh, tucks his tail between his legs, right? He didn't have a tail, but you understand, right? And he leaves Egypt and he goes back up to Canaan land and he goes back up to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. He returns back to where he was. In other words, he had backslidden and now he's getting right with God. Okay? And he returns back to Bethel. He sacrifices to God. And he is still God's child. God's had to deal with him. Okay, so anyway, that was the end of chapter 12. God's protected him even though he's disobedient. Loved him even in the state that he was in. Chapter 13, he returns to Bethel. And he shows a little bit of hard-gotten wisdom in dealing with some difficulty. This is whenever he has to separate from Lot, whenever the herdmen are fighting with one another, and Abraham is no longer looking out for himself. He says, Lot, I'll let you do whatever you think is best. I will take the worst end of this. I don't have to look out for me because God's going to take care of me. Right? He's learned a lesson. And so he puts it before Lot. He says, you choose the part that you want. I'll take the leftovers, and God will bless me even with the leftovers. And so then God renews and reassures Abraham of his promises in the last part of chapter 13. Uh, chapter 13, verse 14, And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be numbered. And so what he's doing with Abraham now, remember Abraham has just returned from Egypt. He just came back to Bethel. He's just gotten right with God. And now he has gotten himself separated from even Lot, right? And he's at a place where he can listen to God. And God says, I just want to reassure you. I want to let you know, I'm not done with you. What I promised you all the way back when you started following me, I'm still going to make it happen. That's a great reassurance, isn't it? So whenever we first get saved, your sins are forgiven. Heaven's going to be your home. Lord, I messed up. Are you going to kick me out? Are you done with me? No, your sins are still forgiven. Heaven's still going to be your home. You got a little bump and you got a bruise, you got some scars, but you're still mine. And so then we have verse our chapter number 14. Uh Abraham is making a bit of a change here. Now, Abraham is pursuing after Lot. The enemies come while Lot is down next to Sodom. They come and take him and the people of Sodom captive and make off with them all. Uh, Abraham hears about this, and now he is going to recover Lot. We're seeing how God is changing his heart, changing his priorities, and he says, I'm willing to risk all to go after Lot and to bring him back. He was in a bad place. He shouldn't have been down there to begin with. His decisions, his choices have caused him to be in an even worse place. And I'm going to go out. I'm going to leave my 90 and 9 and I'm going to seek out this one little lost lamb. And so he takes his household servants. He arms them up as warriors, as soldiers, 
and God gives him victory, and he takes his household servants, his staff, and defeats five kings. And this is foreshadowing what God's going to do for the people of Israel, because time after time, God is going to give victories to the Jews whenever they shouldn't have had victory. And at the end of this battle, we get an even better glimpse into the way that Abraham is developing and how his faith is growing. He meets Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, right? And he offers up tithes to him. He worships God. He gives a portion to God. And he is showing thanksgiving and gratitude toward God for the victory that God has just given him, right? Then whenever the, the kings of Sodom and all try to give him all of the riches and all the spoil of battle, he says, no, I'm not taking any of it because I don't want anyone to be able to say that you have made me rich, that my God is able to supply all of my need according to his riches and glory, right? That's not a direct quote from Abraham, but that's what was going on in his mind, right? And so he says, I'm not taking any of your riches. God's going to take care of me. And so he rejects all of the spoil because he has learned that God can take care of him wherever he's at, whatever state that he's in there with to be content, right? But we come up to chapter 15. Abraham was doing so good, wasn't he? He was growing. Things were going good. He was winning battles. He was rejecting temptations. He was trusting in God. And we come to chapter number 15, and it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So he has just won a battle, and he rejected the reward, right? So God says, I'm protecting you, and I will be the reward that you need. It's great scripture, right? And it goes right in along with this. But Abraham's response in verse number two and Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and this steward of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward the heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Verse number six. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So there's our verse. He believed, it was counted unto him for righteousness. His belief was waning. He was beginning to question. He says, God, you've given me all these promises, and I'm not seeing myself progress toward them. You said that I was going to become a great nation and I still, I'm getting older. I still have no children. My inheritance, all these things that you have given me are going to pass into someone else's household because I have no children. And God says, said before about the sand, about the dust and things. Now he uses the stars. He says, Abraham, I meant it whenever I said it before. You are going to be the father of a great nation. I've not changed anything. It's still going to happen. And God now, in chapter number 15, at the end of this, God enters into a covenant with Abraham, and he uses a common method of that day. He says, Abraham, I want you to take all these animals 
divide them in half and lay them out. Okay, kind of a gory job, isn't it? Because I want you to divide them in half, tear half of them out over here, half of them over here. And what they would normally do is that they would take the animals, they would split them, and then the two men that was entering into the covenant would join hands or uh, hold on to each other in some way, bind themselves together in some way, and they would walk together through between the pieces. Okay? And essentially what it meant was if I break my half of the deal, may I end up tore apart like these animals. Okay? May I be cut asunder like these animals were. But that was the covenant. And that was what the, they would typically do in that area at the time. And so God says, prepare the animals. And then after they're prepared, Abraham just, he waits. The birds are coming around. He's shooting the birds away, get away, get away. Nighttime comes. And it says that God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And while Abraham's asleep, God passes by himself through the midst of those signifying that he was making a covenant with Abraham that was not dependent upon Abraham. He says, I'm going to make this promise, but you have no conditions whatsoever. This is an unconditional promise where I'm taking all responsibility on myself. And so it's up to me to fulfill it. And if I don't fulfill the promises that I've made to you, may I be like these animals on the ground here. May I be cut asunder like they are. And of course, God can't lie and he keeps his word. And so he makes this covenant with Abraham, and it's not dependent on Abraham. Abraham. Abraham has to do absolutely nothing to keep up his end of the covenant because he began in the beginning, he believed God. And so God says, I'm promising this to you. Abraham's faith falters from time to time, and God comes and renews the promise to him, uh, repeats it to him maybe. It's not necessarily renewal, but he re, uh, reiterates it to him. And over and over again, he is reassuring Abraham. Abraham says, are you sure, God? Is it really going to happen, God? And God, each time, is upping the ante a little bit and not necessarily binding himself, but to prove it to Abraham, yes, I meant what I said. So to relate, to relate that to us today, as we go through our lives and we mess up and as things take too long, as it doesn't work out the way that we think that it should, as it seems like God is uh, not going the right direction or doing the things we think that he should, we begin to question, we begin to doubt, we begin to wonder, and over and over God is saying, I meant it when I said it the first time. I'll say it again, I'll say it again, I'll say it again, that he saved us, he will keep us, and that good work that he has began in us, he will continue it until he returns and takes us home. And so this is what he's doing. He's reassuring Abraham over and over again. And I think oftentimes we need reassurance over and over again because uh, sometimes it's hard walking by faith. We like there to be proof. We like there to be sight. We like to see how things are progressing along. And in Abraham's mind, things aren't progressing. He's at a standstill. He still has no children. And God says, you can trust me. I'm binding myself to a covenant, Abraham, so that's chapter number 15. Chapter 16, Abraham tries to take on God's responsibility. He says, okay, God's going to keep this covenant, but maybe I misunderstood something. And so then he takes Hagar to be his concubine, to be his second wife, right? And he conceives a child with Hagar saying, okay, it's going to be my seed. It won't be Sarah's, but it'll be my seed. 
I'll help God along a little bit, right? And whenever he does this, he's taking God's responsibility on because all along God has reiterated, I am going to do these things. I am going to make it happen. I'm going to cause this to happen. And Abraham says, well, I might have misunderstood. I'm going to help God along a little bit. I'm going to do my part in this. And Abraham makes a mess out of it. A mess that has haunted his people for centuries, right? But as I said, this runs parallel to us because whenever we get impatient, whenever we don't know what's going on, whenever it seems like God isn't causing things to happen or he's not making things happen the way we think they should, we get involved. We try to become God, right? We put in, uh, put in our efforts where they don't belong and we make a mess out of things. We especially do this in other people's lives, don't we? We look at other people's lives and we say, okay, uh, maybe I need to do something more here. Maybe I need to push this along. Maybe I need to poke and prod this a little bit more and make this happen. And we end up making messes, right? And so in chapter number 17, every time Abraham makes a mess, what does God do? Okay. To an extent, he fixes it. Some of the messes... Actions have consequences, don't they? And Abraham continues to deal with the consequences of Hagar and Ishmael. And the Ishmaelites are still part of the ones that the uh, the Jews are struggling with today. You look in the Palestinians and a lot of the Arabs, they are descendants of Ishmael. And that was a mistake that Abraham made and the world was still paying for. How would you like to be that? Make a mistake that's still being paid out thousands of years later? <laughs> But anyway, I need to bring this to a close. Whatever we see here, that every time Abraham messes up, God reassures him, right? So in chapter number 17, God renews his covenant with Abraham. And it says, when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, he's not walking perfect, is he? Not in the sense that we think of. But whenever God says, be thou perfect, he's talking about being genuine, being upright, being sincere, being mature in his faith, right? He's not going to be walking perfectly. Not in the way that we normally think of. But in verse number two, it says, and I will make a covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly and Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thou shalt be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee fruitful, and I will make nations out of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and unto thy seed after thee the land whereon thou art a stranger, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So that was the same promise God's been making him all along, right? Abraham messed up. 
had a love child with the, the servant girl, right? Thinking that that was going to fulfill the criteria, give God a plan B, right? And God says, Abraham, you messed up again. I still love you. I haven't forgotten what I promised you. You haven't sinned bad enough to mess up my plans for you yet. I work all these things together for good. You're going to have some consequences. You're going to have some uh, uncomfortable times because of the stupid decisions you made. But I still love you. I'm still going to make you a father of many nations. I'm still going to give you the land. I'm still going to keep the promise that I made to you in the beginning whenever you first believed and you started following me. And we see that he shepherds Abraham as a father would a child. And so God keeps his father and son relationship with Abraham. He gives him a new name and he gives him a token to remind him that he belonged to God. So we had the covenant before where they walked through with the pieces. Now he gives him circumcision. So he has a constant reminder that he is God's chosen person, that he is God's chosen family, that he gives him something permanent to remind him of that, right? Because this isn't for God. This isn't a reminder to God. This is to reassure Abraham, right? And so instead of all these things, our biggest reminder today, we have God's word. This is the token. This is the covenant. This is the circumcision. This is what God has given us to reassure us over and over again when we think that we've disqualified ourselves, when we think that we have ruined our chances, whenever we think God's done with us, we go back to the word of God and we find that we are accepted in the beloved, that it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace, he has saved us. We find that it is uh, over and over throughout the Bible, while we were yet in the, uh, enemies of God, he died for us, right? It's not based on our performance. And so anyway, uh, we can continue through this. I'll just breeze through very quickly. Chapter 18, Abraham's God's friend. Uh, he engages in intercession for Lot. This is where God comes and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, if you find 10 righteous people there, will you, uh, will you keep it safe? Will you keep from destroying it? And he agrees to that. And so at this point in time, whenever he is interceding for Lot and for Sodom, it's been about 25 years. He's 90 and 9, right? It started out whenever he was 75. So 25 years as a Christian. He's had some major ups and downs, but he's grown to the place to where he is a friend of God, he is pleading with God, and he is seeking the salvation of his family and of his neighbors, right? It's taken a while for him to get there. Chapter 20, Abraham relapses. We thought he had it figured out, didn't we? He goes down to Gerar. He's at uh, Ahimelech. And he lies again about Sarah being his wife. And now she's 90 years old, 89 years old. And he says, you're still good looking. He's still going to want you. Right? Same thing happens again. Only this time Ahimelech sees that. No, I might get my story because Isaac does the same thing he learns from his dad. But anyway, it all comes out that he lied to Ahimelech. Once again, he's got a pagan reproving him for the lies that he has told, right? 
And something important I want to bring out of this is how important was it that Abraham and Sarah remained alive and married? God has in multiple times said, I am going to make a great nation out of you and Sarah. I'm going to make all nations of the earth be blessed. A reference to Jesus coming, right? He was going to be the family, the lineage that Jesus came through, right? And so there is a spiritual aspect of this, a spiritual warfare aspect, because Satan is always trying to short circuit God's plans. And so if Abraham is slain by Ahimelech for being an idiot down there and lying to him, then is he going to be the father of a great nation? If Sarah is stolen off by another man to be his wife and Abraham loses her, are they going to father or parent a great nation? And so we find that Satan is constantly trying to ruin God's plans. He does that in our lives as well. He knows that God has good things for us. He doesn't want us to ever see them happen. For instance, we can look at it, uh, uh, any Christian, but we look at uh, so many pastors we see fall into sin. Why does that happen? If he can short-circuit that, look at all the damage that he can cause, right? If he could have short-circuited Abraham there, look at all the damage it would have caused. This is what he tries to do. And so then, just to, to close out, chapter number 21, Abraham's messed up again, but he is starting to see God's promises take shape. Um, Sarah conceives a child, right? She has a child. Now, Ishmael becomes a problem, starts mocking the child, and we find that even though the promises are starting to take shape, his past is still haunting him. God forgives sins, but it has consequences in this world, temporal consequences. But the last half of the chapter shows the positive influence that Abraham's testimony had on the nations around him. They said, we can see that God is with you and that he blesses and prospers whatever you do. We ask you, don't attack us, make peace with us, because we're afraid of you and your God. And so even though Abraham has a up and down, inconsistent, sometimes very poor testimony, through it all, God still shines through and the people around him see God in his life and have respect for him and his God, right? And that takes us finally to chapter number 22, which we'll probably be looking at next week. Abraham's greatest test in his testimony whenever he is called to offer up Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. By the time he gets there, he's up in his hundreds. Don't know exactly how old, but probably over 110 by this time, 115 years old. And he has walked with God somewhere around 35 to 40 years. And God comes to him and asks him the impossible. And he immediately responds, yes, Lord. And so as we look at the entirety of Abraham's walk with God, he lives to be 175. He walks with God for 100 years. We're only about halfway through that when we get to Isaac. Right? But it wasn't him starting off hitting the ground running that he was super spiritual Mr. Christian at the very beginning, was it? 
He believed God. God says, I'm going to make these things happen. God held true to his promises in spite of Abraham. All the promises that he made to Abraham on day one, did God keep them? Did Abraham do everything he could to mess it up? And God still kept them, right? And so as we close with this, we're talking about salvation before Christ. Salvation was by faith. It wasn't based on his continued faith and obedience. It wasn't based on his merit. It was based on God's promises and Abraham accepting God's promises. He struggled with God's promises. He struggled with God's performance. But over time, God worked in his life and guided him and directed him, and he got to where God said that he would go. And so all through our lives, we begin our walk of faith whenever we believe in him for salvation. We know that we're going to end up in glory one of these days, but in between, sometimes it's a mess. We're going to have successes. We're going to have failures. We're going to have times where we're running well and sometimes when we're barely running. And all through that, God is prodding us on. He is allowing us to learn from our mistakes. He is reproving us. He is correcting us. He is chastising us. He's putting us back on track. And all along, he is loving us. He is reassuring us. And he is growing us on. And one day, he's going to take us to where he said that we were going when we signed on at the beginning. Right? And so whenever we look at Abraham and we look at ourselves, is there much difference? Not much difference in our salvation. Not much difference in our Christian life. We've been revealed a little bit more. We have some more information to go by. Thankfully, we have accounts of people like Abraham where we can learn how God deals with us and hopefully not make some of the same mistakes that he did. Right? But Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So does anyone have anything to add to or to comment on this tonight? Had you ever looked at Abraham in that way? Not so much? Okay, well, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we do thank you for the life and testimony of Abraham. And Lord, I, I pray that it's been a help and encouragement to everyone here as it has been to me. And Lord, I just pray, ask you that you would be with us and help us, Lord, to uh, just continue to, to believe you, continue to put our faith and our trust in you. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that you would uh, continue guiding us and growing us tenderly as you did Abraham. Lord, we do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen.